Welcome to Thrive Radio, expert visionary and innovative business, life, and relationship advice to live a life of doing the impossible with your host, Amy Montgomery. With me today is Paul Smith, one of the world's leading experts in business storytelling. He's one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers of 2018, a storytelling coach and best-selling author of the books, The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell, Sell with a Story, Lead with a Story, Parenting with a Story, and Four Days with Kenneth Tedford. He holds an MBA from the Wharton School a former consultant of Accenture and a former executive and 20-year veteran of the Procter & Gamble company. Paul, welcome to the show. Amy, thanks for having me on. How would you describe your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I think uh, late might be the best word for it. Uh, <laughs> I was in my mid-40s before I decided to uh, strike out and leave my corporate career and do my own thing. So that's probably the shortest description of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I loved both those companies and spent most of the, that time at the Procter and Gamble company, 20 years. Um, and it was a great company. I, I would have been happy to, you know, spend the next 20 years there. Uh, except that I just got fascinated with this concept of storytelling, uh, along that way. And, um, uh, I, I also thought uh, a fair amount about what I wanted to really, I guess, do with my life. And I don't know if that's a midlife crisis or not, but I had kind of developed this theory that most people love about 10% of their job. And, you know, it's why they took that job to begin with. It's why they chose that career or whatever. Most people probably hate 10% of their job, you know, uh, office politics or filling out their expense report or something. But the 80% in the middle, I think most people think, eh, you know, it's, it's good. Uh, I wouldn't do it if you didn't pay me, but uh, it's good work. And I, I just, I guess after 20 years, I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if I could just do that 10% that I love? And so I, I had to figure out what that was. And I figured out that what that was, was the few days a year that I was speaking or training in front of an organization. So either giving a speech at the company annual meeting or teaching a training class to new hires or teaching newly promoted general managers, you know, something about what my department did or something. So essentially being a teacher um, for professionals. Um, but nobody had a job like that at PG. And it turns out like the only way to get a job like that is to create one by go going off and writing a book about something that, you know, <laughs> that a lot of people want you to come teach them about. And so that led me to go, you know, put those two things together, the storytelling that I'd gotten fascinated with. And this desire for a new career where I could be a full-time speaker and trainer. And so I went off and wrote a book about storytelling, which was the lead with the story was the first one in that journey. And, um, and it just, it did better than I expected. I think it's in its 11th or 12th printing now, and it's in seven or eight languages around the world. And so it very quickly led to me getting to do exactly what I wanted to do, which is uh, speaking and training engagements. And so I ended up leaving the company to, to do that for a living, to write more books on the topic and, and do that. So uh, there was a fair amount of luck involved, but um, it was also uh, pretty intentional. Like I, I wanted to create a new career for myself as a solopreneur, you know, in my mid forties. And I did not want to spend the next 10, 15, 20 years finishing out a regular corporate career. What's one of the most difficult decisions you've had to make in building the businesses that you have? I, I think that it's probably treating my business as one big business instead of a bunch of little ones. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, each time I would write a book, I would think about it as, okay, this book is a profit center. I, this book needs to make money for me. 
and I, you know, I develop a new speech or training class. Okay. That training class needs to be profitable for me. And I think that turned out not to be a very good decision uh, because, you know, I'd get quite, I'd have somebody invite me on their radio show or something and they'd say, uh, Hey, can you give away a few copies of your book to my listeners? And I would, I would run the math and I'd say, well, I make about a dollar fifty, a dollar and fifty cents per book, um, but I have to buy the books for fifteen dollars. So I'd have to sell an extra ten books just to break even. If I give you one book, and if you want me to give you four, I got to sell forty extra copies of that book just because people listen to me on your radio show. I don't think that's going to happen. Like, so that's just not a good business decision for me. And then you know, I, I finally realized, no, that's not the right way to look at it. The books are like a uh, a loss leader, I should just give the books away, honestly, because, you know, if, if just one person reads my book and hires me to give a speech at their company meeting or teach a training class, well, I've made thousands of dollars, right? So I, I finally realized I needed to start treating my business as one big business with some parts that might make money and some parts that might not, instead of trying to micromanage every part of the business that had to be profitable. That, but that was hard for me to come to terms with that, but I think it was the right thing to do. What made you write a book on storytelling just for salespeople? Yeah, two things. Um, one is I noticed that about 25% of my clients were sales teams, whereas you know if, uh, a year earlier, it was mostly, um, well, it still was mostly leadership teams, but um, at some point, sales teams became a quarter of my business. And I realized, yeah, maybe I should do some research and write a book just for that group of people. But the the other more practical reason is my publisher asked me to. So my you know my first book, Lead with a Story, was my idea. You know, I pitched it to several publishers or several agents and publishers, and you know I wanted to write that book. Um, by the time the third, it was time for a third book. My publisher was coming to me with ideas, and that so honestly that was their idea. It wasn't even mine. <laughs> um, and so uh, yeah, when a publisher asks you to write a book and that's what you want to do for a living, you you know you, you write the book. But. What do you mean when you say sales story? What's the difference between a sales story and a sales pitch? A sales pitch is basically a list of reasons to buy something, right? And here are yeah. the three reasons why you should buy the product I'm selling. A sales story is first and foremost a story, meaning it's a narrative about something that happened to someone. You know, there's a time, a place, a main character, that main character's trying to accomplish something. There's usually someone or something getting in the way, like a villain, right? Um, an obstacle. And there are events that transpire along the way and hopefully resolve themselves nicely in the end. So it doesn't resemble a list at all. It's a, it's, it's a story. So it's first of all, it's a story. Second of all, it's a story that will further your sales objectives. Now, that may be to sell something, but it may be just to get a sales call or maybe just to introduce yourself to somebody. Um, so um, in, in fact, maybe this is a good place to, to give you an example. Actually, something that happened to me and my wife, we were at uh, Coney Island in Cincinnati and uh, at an art fair. And she was looking for a picture for our kids' bathroom here at home. And so we were going booth to booth to booth. And we got to this one booth of this guy named Chris Gugliamello. Look this guy up. He's amazing. Takes these mesmerizing underwater picture of sea anemones and coral reefs and sharks and whales and stuff. Anyway, she starts flipping through his pictures and she just gets emotionally attached to this one picture that to me looked about as out of place as a pig in the ocean because it literally was a picture of a pig in the ocean, okay? Which is just silly, right? I mean, pigs don't swim. They don't live in the ocean. You know, what's a pig doing in the ocean? Well, so when I finally got the chance to ask the guy that question, that's when the magic started. The, the guy said, oh yeah, Paul, that, that was the craziest thing. He said, 
That picture was taken off the coast of this uninhabited island in the Bahamas called Big Major K. And he said, apparently what happened was a few years earlier, some local entrepreneur decided to raise a pig farm for, for bacon, I guess. And he found out there was this uninhabited island where he could keep the pigs for free. Well, he's no dummy, so he's going to put them on the free place instead of renting a pig farm, right? So uh, anyway, he said, but if you look up behind the pigs up on the beach, what, what kind of vegetation do you see there? And I said, well, all, all I recognize up there is cactus. And he said, right, <laughs> that's a problem. Pigs don't like cactus. So like there was literally nothing for them to eat on this island. So the entrepreneur wasn't that smart after all. But fortunately for the pigs and the entrepreneur, a local restaurant owner on a neighboring island was boating his kitchen refuse over to Big Major K every night and dumping it overboard, like a few dozen yards offshore, just the kitchen scraps, right? Well, if you're a hungry pig or hungry anything, if you get hungry enough, you'll do anything, right? So after a few days of being hungry, you know, one of these little pigs got brave enough to dog paddle or pig paddle his way out into the ocean to get this food. And then two little pigs and then three little pigs. And here it is three generations later and all the pigs on Big Major K can swim. And that's why. So he said, normally when I go take pictures underwater, it takes hours because I have to put on my scuba gear and go underwater and wait for something interesting to happen. He said, but when I went to Big Major K, those pigs swam out to my boat. Like they thought I was the guy from the restaurant, right? All I did was lean over the boat with my camera, take a picture. Boom. Easiest picture I ever took. And it's one of my best sellers. Wow. So I was like, sold, I'll take it right, right. Sold for cash right now. So like, ask yourself why uh, two minutes earlier, I had no interest in that picture, but after he told me that story, I had to have it yeah. and I had to have it because I love that story, right? I like listening to the story. I like telling the story. If you come to my house and go to the bathroom, you're going to hear me tell it again, right? It's a animal psychology lesson, a geography lesson and a, a you know, all, all kind of rolled into one, right? So Anyway, the story made that picture far more valuable than just the picture, right? Because now I was buying a picture with a story attached to it, or maybe I was buying a story with a picture attached to it. Either way, I, ha I had to have it. So that's an example of a, a sales story. Now, that's just a silly story about a, a pig in the ocean. You know, like he wasn't telling me that to sell me the picture, but that's what it did. Now, he could have told me, you know, Paul, there's three reasons why you should buy this picture of the pig. Right. First of all, it's the right size to fit in your bathroom. Second of all, it's the right color palette to match, match the towels. Third, it's in the right price range that you said you're willing to spend. I mean, that would be a sales pitch, right? Those are three reasons to buy the product, but the story was much better. So that's an example. And we can get into some others later, but when I say a sales story, I, I mean a real story that makes you want to buy something. Why do you think stories work so well in sales? Yeah, I guess because I mean, sales is all about influencing decisions right? Purchase decisions. And what psychologists have learned about decision-making is that we don't make the logical, rational decisions that we'd like to think we do, right? It turns out many, if not most of our decisions are made in a subconscious, emotional processing part of the brain. And then we justify that decision logically and rationally in a conscious thinking part of the brain a few nanoseconds later. So the truth is our emotional subconscious brain already made the decision and the rest of our brain is just trying to catch up. And all of your logical sales pitches only reach that logical conscious thinking part of the brain, but stories can reach the subconscious 
emotional part, processing part of the brain. And you need to speak to both. Yeah, I think that's really powerful because I've always heard that term. Don't be a brain on a stick when you go to make a sale. I like that brain on a stick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if there's no emotional intelligence. You're just a brain on a stick. You outlined 25 types of stories that people should be selling. So where do they fit in the sales process and what are some of the most important ones? Yeah. So I, I, I won't like repeat all 25, but in general, as I was doing the research for the book, I mean, I was interviewing, of course, salespeople all over the world, but I was interviewing professional buyers as well, professional procurement managers, because I figured who better to tell me what sales stories work and which ones don't than professional buyers. Right. Um, and so I was you know, asking them to tell me where salespeople are telling stories. And, and it turned out Great salespeople are telling stories throughout the entire sales process, not just to make the sales pitch. So from the moment they meet a prospect, they're telling stories to, to when they're building rapport, to making the actual sales pitch itself, to resolving objections, to closing the sale, even to service after the sale. And there's like a handful of stories I found that salespeople are telling in each of those phases of the sales process. So like some of the most important ones would be, I call it a problem story. I think it's number 11 on my list. So that's a story about the quintessential problem that your product or service solves. And so that's an important story to tell, especially when your prospect doesn't even know they have the problem that your product solves. Like you have to convince them that they, that they need your product first. Right. So that, and, and many people don't tell that story. They just, they, they go in and tell a customer success story which is an important, that's a very important sales story. And it's probably the most important one, And but everybody has those. So another really important one is a how we're different from our competitors story. So I call that a marketing story, but it's a story. It's a story about you dealing with a customer and about one of your competitors dealing with a customer so that your audience, your prospect can see the difference, right? Because you, you're not, you don't just have to convince your buyer that you're good. You have to convince, convince them that you're better than your competition. So you need a story that compares those two things. So th those are some of the two most important ones that people don't realize they need is the problem story and then how we're different from our competitor story. How do you get buyers to tell their stories? Well, first of all, shut up and listen, right? I mean, the, one of the biggest sins that salespeople commit is they just don't stop talking. And if, if you don't stop talking, they're, they're never going to tell you your stories. First of all, I should explain it's important to get your buyers to tell you stories instead of just answer your questions. So when you're doing your discovery work, you want them to tell you stories for the same reason that you want to tell them your stories, because they're more effective. They're more effective at communicating the real human issues at hand. So one of the techniques to get them to tell you stories is to, well, one is to shut up and listen, but the, uh, another one is to ask questions that require a story for an answer. So for example, you could ask a prospect, what's your biggest problem right now? Because I mean, that's an important thing for you to know as a salesperson, so you can help solve the problem. Yeah. But that's not going to get a story. That's just going to get you a one word answer. Like they might say, oh, warehousing. Warehousing is our biggest problem. Well, that doesn't really help you that much. But if you were to ask the question this way, tell me about the moment you realized your biggest problem was your biggest problem. Oh, now well, that would have been a few months ago on a Saturday when our biggest client called us in a panic and needed our product like right away. And so we went out to the warehouse to get it and there, we didn't have any. And so we had to schedule a special production run and make a whole bunch of it and then ship it to them expedited, which cost a whole bunch of extra money. And it got there just in time. And then we went out to the warehouse and found all the product that they needed sitting right where it should have been all along. Okay. 
Now you know what they mean by a warehousing problem. Yeah. They have an inventory location finding problem. And so you need to get them to tell you stories. And so, so a couple, those are a couple of the techniques to get them to actually tell you a story instead of just answer your questions. How do you create the right emotional engagement in stories? So two techniques. Uh, one is dialogue. People say what they think and feel, right? I mean, it, it will come out of their mouths. So if all your stories sound like this, this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Well, that's not a very good story because somewhere in there ought to be, and he said this, and then she said this, and then he said this, and then she said this, and then this, this happened, and then this happened, and then he said this. So having the dialogue in there creates the emotion because people are going to, they're going to be yelling at each other. Or they're going to be apologizing for something. They're going to be, I mean, the emotion will come through the dialogue. So include what people said in your stories. Another technique, and there are dozens, I'll just give you these two. Um, another one is, uh, I call it a show me technique. So what that means is let your audience see the physical manifestations of the emotions on the main characters. Now that doesn't mean, I don't mean you act it out. You know, I don't teach an acting class, yeah. but it means describe how they were behaving or what they looked like so that your audience can figure out what the emotion was. So instead of saying he was sad, say he started crying. Well, people cry when they're sad. Your audience will figure it out. Instead of saying she was angry, say she started yelling. Well, people yell when they're angry, right? Your audience will figure it out. So describe, you know, or, or her face got beat red, you know, like describe what's happening and what they looked like and sounded like and let your audience infer the emotion. And for some reason, that's a more powerful way for an audience to experience the emotion is having to figure it out from the clues you're giving them than just to tell them she was angry or he was sad. You've written several books in storytelling. Why did you write the 10 stories great leaders tell? Yeah, because I, I think I needed a focus. I mean, I'd, I'd written, you know, the first book was Lead with a Story. And I think there are 23 types of leadership challenges where storytelling is effective. And I've got a chapter on each of them and, and, and a handful of stories for each of those chapters. And then Parenting with a Story, I had another 20 some odd types of stories parents should tell. And then we just talked about there's 25 sales stories. And I just, I realized that's a lot. That's like 70 types of stories just right there in those three books. And so I wanted to be able to give my audience a short list to start with so that they weren't just overwhelmed with, oh, I got to learn 70 different stories, you know, if I'm going to be effective in life. No, that's not true. Start with 10. And so, you know, I, and so I literally, I, I, the, the book is really short. You can read the whole book in one hour. It's 10 chapters, one on each story. And there's one example of each story in each chapter. That's it. It's 10 stories in the book. And so it's just a, a simpler place for people to start with their leadership storytelling. How did you pick the 10 most important stories? Yeah, so, so several things. Mainly it was stories that my clients had been asking me for almost a decade to help them with. So I, I'm a storytelling coach and people hire me to come help them develop their leadership stories. And so these were, these were stories that many of my clients have been asking me for help with. So I knew it was going to be a, that way I knew it would be a practical list, but, you know, I also wanted to pick stories that I knew were in areas that were important for leaders to exert some influence in the organization, not, you know, unimportant areas. Um, I wanted stories that leaders in all functions would need to tell. So not just stories for the salespeople to tell or just stories for the HR person to tell or just the finance person, stories everybody needed to tell. But the, the last criteria was I wanted stories that wouldn't need to change very often. So you could invest some time to get good at telling them because you're going to tell them over and over for a decade like or more. Like 
you know, the, your, the company founding story is the first story in the list of 10. Well, your founding story shouldn't ever change, right? I mean, your company only got founded one time. Yeah. Um, now, your strategy story might change every five or six years because your strategy might change every five or six years. But your strategy shouldn't change every week. So your strategy story shouldn't change every week. So I picked stories like that that would be long-term stories that you really needed to get good and tell over and over and over again. So can you give us an example of one or two of them and which one are leaders worst at telling and which ones are they usually pretty good at? Well, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, they're typically best at telling the founding story because that's just a story most people are familiar with the founding of their company. They're typically worst at the stories they didn't know they needed. And like I just mentioned, the strategy story, like the first four stories are where we came from. So that's a founding story. Why we can't stay there, which is a case for change story where we're going, which is a vision story, and how we're going to get there, which is a strategy story. So most leaders are good at telling the founding story because they know they need to tell that story. But most of them are not very good. And, and sometimes they're good at telling a case for change story, but they're lousy at telling vision stories and strategy stories because they don't even know they need them. They know they need a vision and they probably have one. And they know they need a strategy and they almost certainly have one but they don't realize they need a strategy story to go with the strategy and a vision story to go with the vision. So they just never heard one before. They have no idea what it sounds like. Um, you know, and, and the, the one I give you an example of is number nine on my list, which is um, a leadership philosophy story, which is another type of story that leaders need that they really don't often realize they need one. Um, although some people tell them and don't realize that's what they're doing. So it, it's a story to help explain why you lead the way you do. So one of my favorite examples comes from a guy named Mike. And uh, he his first leadership opportunity was in the Army. He, he was a West Point guy. So his first, literally his first leadership opportunity, he's commanding a tank in a training exercise out in California somewhere in a 10-mile long, 5-mile wide training field. And he's assigned to lead these guys driving a tank into this simulated battle. So it's real tanks on a real field but they're not shooting live ordinances at each other. They don't want to hurt anybody. So they're shooting like lasers, right? So there's little detectors. And um, so he happens to be assigned to be the leader in the first tank that's going to go into battle on his side of the field with in wedge formation of 399 tanks behind him, right? 400 tanks on this side versus 400 on that side. So he's got to sit down with the commanding officer the night before and look at a map of the terrain and figure out where the high ground is so they'd have the best chance of winning the exercise. So the next morning, the, you know, the exercise starts, he's in the tank, they're racing out onto the field. They get to the first place where he's got to make a decision to either turn right or left. And he just doesn't know what to do because apparently looking at a battlefield through the crack in a hatch bouncing up and down at 40 miles an hour looks a little different than it does on a map in a conference room, right? Yeah. So he's got a decision to make. He can either stop the tank, turn the light on, get the map out, figure out the right thing to do, which might take, I don't know, 30 seconds. Or option two is he can just guess. Well, Mike chose option two. He yells out, driver, turn left. So the driver turns left. Well, a few seconds later, the light inside his tank starts flashing, which means you just got shot by a laser. You're, you're dead, right? So they had to stop the tank and pop the hatch and get out. Those guys are done for the day. Well, a few seconds later, tank number two turns left right behind him because that's their job. Follow the leader, right? Well, then their light starts flashing. They're done. Tank number three turns left and their light starts flashing. But the guys in tank number four saw three tanks turn left and get virtually shot and killed. They realized that was a mistake. So tank number four turned right. And then 396 other tanks turned right. 
and they took the high ground and won the exercise. So Mike made a mistake that day. Right? He turned left when he should have turned right, but he learned a valuable leadership lesson from that. And that's this. Sometimes it's better to make the wrong decision quickly than to make the right decision slowly. Right? He should have turned right. But imagine if he had chosen option one and stopped the tank and turned the light on, got the map out and spent that 30 seconds figuring out the right thing to do. There'd have been 400 tanks stopped getting picked off one at a time, right? Yeah. But because he made a quick decision, even though it was the wrong decision, I mean, war and life and business and training exercises are all similar in that they tend to let you know when you've made a mistake because things start going badly. And then you realize, oh, that was a mistake. And then you can monitor and adjust. So as long as it's not really honestly deadly, sometimes it's better to just make a quick decision and you'll figure it out because, and because we, you know, we get stuck in, in, in management all the time and analysis paralysis where we'll spend months analyzing a situation before making a decision about what to do. And meanwhile, our competition is moving forward and that's usually a mistake. So he tells that story now to people when he, you know, is new to working with him to help them understand what kind of a leader he is and that he makes, he's a decisive leader. But that's a far better way to explain that than saying, oh, I'm a decisive leader. Well, what does that even mean? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Yeah. And it also coaches them the, you know, about the kind of leadership he expects from them too. So that's a, that's a leadership philosophy story. And you probably need several of them because you probably have several leadership philosophies. But those, you want to tell stories about the times where you, you, you decided what your leadership philosophy was or those moments that changed how you lead. Do you have any tips on how to create a well-crafted story? So hopefully you, you see some of these, you know, come through and, and as I'm sharing these. So yeah, there, there ought to be some emotional engagement in these stories. And there's usually a, a you know, a good surprise in there somewhere that makes it engaging. But uh, one of the most basic things you need is just a, a clear story structure. Like you, you, you need, you know, you need a beginning, middle and an end, right? But Beginning, middle, end isn't very helpful to people. So what I've devised is eight questions your story needs to answer and in a particular order for the story to make sense. So I'll just, I'll give you the eight questions. Here they are. First of all, why should I bother listening to your story, right? You got to answer that first or they might not listen to your story. But then the next five are these, where and when did it take place? Who's the main character and what did they want? What was the problem or opportunity they ran into? What did they do about it? And how did it turn out in the end? And those should feel like the natural flow of a story. But if you're, you're keeping track, there's two more. So it's number seven and eight. What did you learn from the story? And what do you think I should go do now? I, the person you're talking to, right? So th that's your opportunity to draw a conclusion and make a recommendation. So the first question is to get their attention and get them to listen to you. The last two questions are to get them to go do something to actually achieve your leadership objective. The five in the middle are actually the story itself, but you kind of need all eight to, for it to be a leadership story. So how can people find out more about the book and how you actually teach them to use these stories in their sales process? Yeah. So probably the best place is just my, my website, which is leadwithastory.com. So there are links there to the books and the training classes I do and all and that kind of stuff and contact information. So that's probably the, the best place. So your story and legacy, how do you want to be remembered? <laughs> so, um, well, I, I, I guess I would just tell you a little bit more about how I got into this, because what, what I told you at the beginning wasn't the whole story. 
after making all those decisions about wanting to go change my career, I was still honestly kind of chicken. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was in my mid forties, I had a wife and kids and, you know, uh, you know, too young to retire and all that stuff. And so going out on your own is, uh, risky, right. Uh, being an author, there's no, you know, guaranteed paycheck or so. Um, I, I went to my dad for advice. My dad was 80 years old at the time. Um, and I told him my predicament and asked him what to do. And I thought he'd just give me some good fatherly advice, but he didn't. <laughs> he just, he told me a story. Um, he said, uh, he said, son, I knew what I wanted to do with my life when I was six years old. He said, I wanted to be a singer like Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Sammy Davis Jr. You know, he's 80. That's his genre. And he said, I knew that for sure the first day of the first grade, because the teacher asked um, all of us, if any of us had any special talent, like, you know, music, music or dancing or magic tricks. And he said, I raised my hand and I said, I can sing. Despite the fact that he had never sung in front of anybody but his mom in the kitchen. Right. But he just fancied himself a singer. And so, well, what do you, I'll ask you, what do you think his teacher did when he announced that he could sing? I don't know. Maybe just uh, tell him to go ahead and give it a try. Well, she said, well, stand up and sing us a song then right now. So, so little five-year-old Bobby Smith or six-year-old Bobby Smith stood up and belted out his favorite song right then in front of the class. And he said, I nailed it. (laughs) I got all the words right, all the melody right. I was so proud. And he said, the teacher and the other students stood up and they applauded me. Like oh, I got wow. my, my first time of singing in front of an audience. I got a standing ovation. He said, that's the moment that I knew this is what I was destined to do with my life. And he said, unfortunately, that turned out not just to be the first time I sang in front of an audience. It turned out to be the last time that I ever sang in front of an audience. Wow. And he said, son, life just got in the way. Uh, and he said, uh, the truth is, I just never had the courage to go through with it. And he said, not a month goes by. Not a month has gone by in the last 74 years. And I have not regretted that decision. And he said, someday you're going to wake up. You're going to be 80 years old like me. And it's going to be too late to pursue this dream. And I, honestly, Amy, if, if that wasn't enough uh, to make me do it, and it was, uh, the last thing he said to me really did. He, uh, he said, I'd love to see you achieve your dream. But that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, my God, TikTok, right? The guy's 80. <laughs> No pressure, um, right? <laughs> yeah. I literally, Amy, two days later, I walk into my boss's office and I quit my job and to pursue the stream. And that absolutely, you know, I would not have done it that soon had it not been from my dad's story. Um, so I, I'm, I'm proud to be able to tell you that he's now 88 and he's lived to see me achieve this dream. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm still too young to retire from the company I was working at. And so, uh, you know, I, uh, if I hadn't done it then, I may, you know, still not be there. I think that's such a powerful message, especially the word safety, because I think that sometimes we hold on to that word because it's more what we're familiar with and we stay with what's familiar. When in reality, you know, you would have never achieved what you have today if you had stayed where you're at. And I think it's letting go of our, what we think is secure when in reality, we can find that security in other ways. Said safety is sometimes overrated. So I want to mention, uh, if you are listening and you want to get copies of Paul's books, uh, you can do so. They, um, I will link them on my website, and they are uh, Lead with a Story, Sell with a Story, The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell, Four Days with Kenny Tedford. I will also add links below where you can contact him 
And his website is leadwithastory.com. Paul, thank you so much for coming on my broadcast today and sharing with us. You've given some great insight and it's been an honor to have you on. Well, thank you everyone for tuning into Thrive Radio. If you want more information about our broadcast, you can go to a call to thrive.com and uh, we will see you in the next broadcast. Thank you.